It's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for informed consent and birth choices. And I'm here, well, not really. I'm I'm here and she's there, but I'm with the best co-host in the business, my friend Bliss. Mysterious one, how are you doing this morning? Um, I'm doing really, really well. We'll talk more about that. You're really big on my screen. Really big on my screen. And everybody else is little. <laughs> All right. Well, we're happy to be back with you. This is podcast number 196. And uh, you can check us out at drstuespodcast.com for the audio. The visual, the videos now are going to be up on Rumble. And Birthing Instincts is my uh, handle on Rumble. And you can reach me at birthinginstincts.com is my website or askdrstu at gmail.com. You can reach Bliss at bliss at birthingbliss.com and her email and her website is birthingbliss.com. And at Instagram and I'm at Birthing Instincts on Instagram and I think we've covered everything, right? <laughs> you know, I was paying attention to the view, so I, I, I'm going to trust you got it. Um, yeah, well, I I've, I've, been, I've been doing, you wanted to know how many podcasts Oh, you wanted to know how many we had done last year, but like I said, I've done 196 of these. But the intro, probably for over 100 of them, that's been the same intro, more or less. So, uh, Do you know how many you've done with me? We'd have to look back, but last year was 30. 33. Well, 30 for yeah. you. Yeah. 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 Um, so I have a request of those, those of you that are joining us in the actual... Um, Zoom today in your in the chat. If you could just tell me, are you a mama? Are you a doula or um, childbirth educator, or are you a um, licensed birth professional? Just kind of want to get a sense of um, who you guys are. That would be great. Thank you. Um, okay. Just, just for just for factual stuff, I don't have the chat up on mine. I'm not exactly sure how to do that, so I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you pay attention to the chat so that I can pay attention to the. The podcast because I get really distracted pretty easily. So. I've noticed yeah. that I love. Right, um, you start. So you want to tell me to tell about my week? Yeah, you about your week, and then you had some things you wanted to talk about and bring up from. Uh, I think you got some emails and stuff you want to talk about, some questions, and then I've got a whole bunch of stuff today. You know, I could, I could, I could preface, I could preface um, what we're going to talk about today. You've got some listener questions. I have some comments and listener questions. I also have uh, thoughts on an article, um, which I found rather annoying in the Green Journal, which is the American College of OBGYN's journal. Uh, sometimes they have good stuff in there. And, um, but this one is just, is just classic. It's classic administrative double uh, newspeak, if people know what I'm talking about with newspeak, which is from 1984. But anyway, so you, you, you've got things to say, so you start. Okay, great. First, I want to say hi, Jennifer, Amy, and Katie. Um, we're so happy. And Tiffany, we're so happy to have you here live with us. Um, we'll and Ellen and Annie. Hopefully, um, we uh, will have time for you guys to ask questions, but you're welcome to put them in the chat. And if we don't get them to them today, we will um, make sure and bring it up. So um, I think first I want to talk about my situation because I think it's very uh, relatable or relevant. To the time. Yeah, I, can, I notice you're not in your kitchen. I am at my brother's house. I wish you guys could see the view. It is um, epic, stunning, amazing. Um, my both of my boys, Jordan, twenty-eight, and Grant, seventeen, tested positive for COVID. It's very interesting because I have been taking so many precautions with my clients and then it ends up that my son who's working, you know, outside of the home was the one who brought it into the home. So he tested positive uh, right after Christmas um, and then we all went and got tested and um, there were five of us in, in my pod and three tested positive and myself and my other friend tested negative. Um, so because of my work, I relocated. So I'm staying at my brother's house in Malibu, which was just a beautiful gift. He's in Kauai. So um, I was able to stay in his home and watch the sunrise and sunset every day since the beginning of the new year. Um, it's interesting when I woke up the very first day, I woke up before the sun rose and the sky was just changing colors. And the first words out of my mouth, 2021, was fuck yes. Forgive me if any of you who 
don't like foul language. I think used appropriately, it can be very good. Yeah, no, nobody who listens to our podcast doesn't like foul language. Everybody likes foul language. <laughs> so I thought that was, you know, I mean, and I want to say I wouldn't be so cavalier about um, how this is going if my friends and family weren't doing well. Um, they're having, I, I don't want to say mild symptoms because I think that um, underestimates how they're feeling, which is crappy. They feel crappy. Um, my son is going on 10 days. None of them had a fever, um, but cold, cough, uh, kind of symptoms, um, loss of taste and smell for my oldest and um, some tummy issues. But, you know, nothing, you know, we're beyond that three to five days of really being concerned. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm very thankful for that. That was um few days of, you know, I was trying not to focus on all of the terrible things that could happen. I was trying to just really stay in the moment and know that statistically, um, those of uh, those that get um, sick from COVID, um, most of them are going to have mild symptoms. And that's proving true for my family. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, I did have a birth. Um, Before you go on to that, I was just, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, it's really interesting to show you how erratic and unpredictable this is. I mean, here's your yeah. household. Your two boys are in it. I know they sleep, uh, are they sleep in the same room? They sleep in the same room, yeah. yeah. Okay, but still, you live in the house with them and stuff like that, and you didn't get it. Yeah, Which is and my best friend who was there with us for Christmas, who's just uh, getting over chemotherapy, Yeah. Um, you know, we sat next to each other and puzzled, and she made dinner for us on Christmas, and... So it's just, I think that those of us that, that are exposed that don't um, get it, don't test positive, um, it's interesting. I think we should be studied, you know, like, what is it? What is that thing? I have what's, a your, what's, your, what's your blood type? You don't know, really? I know, isn't that funny? You know, I know. I don't know. I forgot. Well, the, oh. reason I, the reason I ask is because... Uh, the husband of one of my clients told me that he that he heard someplace that people with O blood type are less likely to get it. I don't, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It doesn't make any scientific sense to myself. But um, we have a lot of theories, right? Lots of theories of what's happening. But it is very interesting. I had a couple, you know, who obviously made love and kissed and slept in the same bed and very healthy lifestyle because my family's trying to say, yeah. well, you're the healthiest out of all of us. But um, they lived a very healthy lifestyle together, very green home, very healthy living. She's the professional dancer. He's very fit. And he got sick and she didn't. So. And I have a pregnant woman who got, who caught it and her husband didn't. Yeah. Right. Right. It's and a, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, a, it's, it's really hard to know what to go on, but, but do you, do you take zinc? Do you take vitamin D? Does, does Grant or. Your, your older son does do they take or jordan does They're he take it now but most they don't take things on a daily basis because yeah see I'm, I'm wondering if that had something to do with it as well because you you take really good care of yourself and you were doing preventative things and most people don't or especially younger people i don't think that they think about taking supplements like as you get older you tend to think you want to take more supplements but so that that's i want to Shout out to our friend Desiree, um, who has the uh, herbology line called Wild Wolf. And um, I've been taking her uh, fire cider for a long time. And definitely we're all on that right now. And then um, she sent over a little care package when Grant got sick with a, um, a lung tea. That's specifically supposed to be helpful for people who are getting sick from COVID and have that cough. So, um, and and her company is Wild Wolf? Yeah. Dot com? Uh, you can find her on Instagram under um, Fox and the Traveling Gypsy. That's her original brand. Um, okay, I just want, I want Desiree to know that Dr. Seuss Podcast is looking for a sponsor. <laughs> I'll let her know. Okay. Oh, by the way, speak, speaking of that, I wanted to give a shout out to Renee, who was my administrative person for years, who retired. Yeah. On December thirty first, and I want to uh, a big loud welcome to Emily, who Yay. is moving from Southern California to Texas. Lucky her, um, in about in a couple of weeks, and she's going to take over the administrative stuff. And hopefully, once the um, 
you know, the travel restrictions and all the fear sort of is, is lifted this year with the vaccine and everything that we get started going, doing the reach seminars again, and she will be the one that's coordinating that. So welcome, Emily. And thank you, Renee. Thank you, Renee, for all of your work. And she started with us at the sanctuary. That's, yep. that's, that's how I found it. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So what's on you? You got a birth. You want to talk about a birth? So I stayed in a hotel the very first night after leaving my house. And I told my friend, I said, I'm probably going to get called to a birth. And I did. Um, that was comical in itself, but I won't get into details. So this mom, um, second time mom, first time was planning to be at a birth center, went into preterm labor at 34 weeks and ended up needing to deliver in the hospital, had a 80 hour labor, which is interesting that she was preterm and then still labored for so, so, so long. Um, and, um, and then had a bunch of losses and then got pregnant again, did genetic testing, um, tested positive, the baby tested positive for triple X syndrome, which I asked you, um, told you I was going to ask you some questions about it. Um, got approved to do a home birth um, because the baby is a girl and is um, low risk in that particular syndrome. And, um, and then tested positive for COVID right around 35 weeks. Um, and so we hadn't really spent a lot of time together. She finally, they all got negative tests and um, I went over there and delivered or caught her baby. She delivered the baby, excuse me. Um, wow. It was a beautiful delivery. Um, and um, Catherine Williams came to be my assist because um, my assist is also getting over COVID um, and has been testing positive for a month. Um, so it was a little bit of a scramble to um, figure out who was going to come and assist me for this. Um, the baby was born um, very small, even at 40 weeks and three days, the smallest baby I've had. So the baby was um, five pounds, six ounces, five pounds, eight ounces. Um, did he, did and, anyone know ahead of time that, that it was small? Did anyone think it might be small? Did she measure small, the mom or? Or, or you know, not not anything that would have put up my alarms. But again, she came late into care, and then we had about a month um, where we couldn't see each other in person. So, um, so baby transitioned really well, no concerns in in her um, newborn exam, none of that. But they started asking me, "Do you think that this could have something to do with triple X?" And I was like, "I don't know enough." to tell yeah. you the truth. Um, and then I started to think also about is, is there anything about having had COVID at the end of her pregnancy that we don't, that we heard, you know, we don't know necessarily about that could also have had something to do with that. The cord was robust and beautiful. The placenta was a totally normally developed placenta. I didn't see anything visibly in terms of, um, you know, maybe, Something having to do with the development of the placenta or the cord. So I just kind of wanted to bring it up. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, you asked me to look it up. I mean, anybody can really look it up because it's really very, I mean, it's very rare. I've never seen anything like it. But apparently, there's really very rarely anything wrong with 46, uh, 47 triple X. They tend to be taller, which will be interesting mm -hmm. to see what, what this little pipsqueak does when she grows up. Yeah. Um, very rarely they have some other associated uh, issues with it, but it's not the common. Otherwise, they're technically very normal and they have normal fertility and all that stuff. So it's just an odd thing, an odd disjunction that occurs early on or, or, you know, right when fertilization occurs or shortly thereafter where the X chromosomes don't split up properly. And so some of the cells, a lot of the time it's the mosaic where some of the cells have 47 triple X, some have 46 XX. Um, didn't find anything about growth restriction or small babies. Don't know. Don't know enough. Anybody, nobody knows enough about coronavirus and and its effect on pregnancy. I mean, most of the time, people get a flu virus or anything in the last trimesters of preg last few months of pregnancy doesn't usually cause a baby to be symmetrically growth restricted like that. So I'm not sure. Don't know why. Um. You know, when I was, um, when I found out that she was positive, I, I basically kind of followed. You know, because you're my the doctor that I normally 
refer to when I have anything outside of the range of normal. And I know that you've had um, people who have tested positive for COVID and pregnancy, and we've talked about other people and there hasn't been any, any recommendation for additional testing. But one of the midwives that I went to school with who worked at a birth center said that when they have people who test positive, they are recommending that they do um, scans to follow them. And I yeah, don't know. If I mean, again, that's the default position of most academicians is to overtest people. So they're they're saying, well, why not err on the side of safety? And you know, people, most people can advocate say that you know ultrasounds are probably innocuous. They probably, you know, they probably don't lead to you know any major problem with an ultrasound or a non-stress test. However, we do know that testing for no reason leads to more interventions, and so there is a downside to testing. It's probably not a physiologic downside, but it, it could be, you know, a, you know uh, an endpoint that we, you know, that leads to something that really wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been testing. So, you know, everybody had look at this is, at least we live in a world where we can still make that decision of whether to be tested or not to be tested. Right. Yeah. Well, one other thing I wanted to say about triple X, which I think is really interesting, is you said it's very rare. And from this mom's perspective, she had a neighbor across the street who also tested positive. Um, triple X? Yes. And, and, um, and she's on a bunch of chat groups. And this particular, the, the neighbor terminated. Oh. And, um, and she's finding out that more and more people are potentially terminating for this. Um, and I talked to her about it and I said, you know, do you think that this is because of the NIPT that it's being picked up more? And so more people are dealing with the choice of whether or not, you know, to move forward with this pregnancy. She said, absolutely. We talk about it all the time in the group. Yeah. And so, you know, she said, because like you said, besides being tall, there's not many um, things that you would notice necessarily about, about this. And so it's just, one of the downsides, maybe, and you and I had a case last year, or two cases last That's year, where yeah. anomalies that came up in NIPT. Um, and so it, it is one of potentially the downsides of doing the NIPT. A lot more people are doing it just because they want to know the sex early, is that you could um, find out things that before you wouldn't even have known and have concerns and worries during your pregnancy that could be founded or could not be. Yeah. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, there you go. That's my check-in. Did you have any births? Nope. I'm, I'm, uh, they're pig piling right now. I'm getting a little bit nervous because, uh, I have a few that I have to be at, you know, and one is in San Diego and the other ones aren't. <laughs> Well, if so, I can be helpful, let me know. I'm I'm pretty slow until I leave for Hawaii. So. Okay. Okay. That that'd be great. Um. I you know the problem is is that by you know these are the ones I have to be there sort of by law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. mean the, the the twins in San Diego are forty weeks today. Yeah. Good old twins that are forty weeks. Um, I know. I know. We've talked about that, so I'm not going to go into that. I've got I've got a couple of uh, uh, listener uh, letters. <laughs> I don't know if you have, I think you had one more something about uh, um, pushing. You had a thing, a follow-up on pushing? Yeah, I said I would talk about it later. I'll jump in when I feel like it's the appropriate time. How's that? <laughs> okay, and then you also said someone wanted to know why I tested before Christmas. You said something about that. Can I read the letter? What's that? Can I read yeah. her? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's from Katie uh, Gore. Or bold. Oh, she's Sorry, on. To, she's online. Oh, hi, Katie. Awesome. She said, um, "Hi, Bliss. I'm hoping that you can hash something out with Dr. Stu on the podcast. I mostly agree with both of you on many topics. I can't keep. I can't keep overlooking one major thought. I haven't heard him address yet. I'm curious if Dr. Stu could discuss his thoughts on asymptomatic carriers of COVID. So, and if you." And and how that how that like plays out with um, you guys deciding to get tested because if people are asymptomatic then um, why would you wear a mask? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, th there's two different issues there. Um, 
the reason the reason I got tested is because my family members wanted everyone tested. Yeah. I thought it would, you know, you know how I feel about it. All right. If you're if you're asymptomatic, um, you know, if I tested positive, I suppose that other family members have a right to know. They want to know um, because they work on jobs. Two of them uh, are on the set. And if they were to do something that was uh, not socially distancing appropriate or something like that, or they were to ever get, get exposed to it, it, would, it could affect their job, their career. They could get fired. They could get, um, you know, have to go on furlough or whatever else for a long time. And they didn't want that to happen. So we all got tested. We just all agreed we would do it. But of course, the testing was done on the Thursday before Christmas. So it's a week ahead of time. So <laughs> you could have caught it any time in between there. I mean, we, unless you're at home, yeah. Yeah, so the asymptomatic part, um, yeah, I, I do agree that, that, the, that the testing is sort of foolish. And the second part of the, what was the second part of the question um, that Katie said? Oh, I think, I think we were talking maybe in a podcast before about like only people who are sick should wear masks. Oh, she said, um, why, are, why are we wearing masks? It was also because, yeah. because my, um, partly because the mother of my children and some of my children um, are, are, are over, I think are, are concerned, maybe overly concerned from my perspective, but not from their perspective. And that's so that I understand that sort of out of respect, that that's what they wanted to do. Plus um, my ex's mother is very frail and old and they were going to go visit her on Christmas day outside. They have a, a nice patio outside and they were going to be outside, but they just didn't, they wanted to avoid any sort of exposure. So that's sort of the reason that we were wearing masks at the Christmas event. Personally, the idea of doing it for, so, for respect, I understand that in that sort of a setting, what I don't understand is the people who wear masks on the trail and I had an encounter this week, another one, where I'm walking without a mask on a trail and two other people, older people are walking by me and they're wearing their masks. They pull them up as they see me. So they weren't wearing them when they're walking by themselves, but they're pulling up. And then they, and the woman said something to me like, you know, put a mask on. Okay. So knowing me, I just, excuse me. I said, would you like to talk about it as they, as they walk by? And he turned around and said, sure. And she said, oh, don't talk to him. You know, that sort of thing. But we had a conversation and it started out cordial, but it got a little, you know, he said, it's out of respect. And I said, well, if it's out of respect, I mean, why is that a sign of respect? If you are worried about it, fine, then wear it, but don't wear it as a symbol. Wear it because it actually does something. And there's no data anywhere that says you catch COVID on a hiking trail in bright sunlight, right? None. So if you wanna wear it because that's fine, but then don't tell me that I should wear it out of respect. She said, well, you're being, you're being disrespectful. I said, no, you, I mean, I guess in your, my mind, you're being disrespectful. You're not respecting my right to be outside in nature without a mask on. And, and then it sort of just, and then off, off we both went. But so in, in that setting, I, under, I, I mean, I don't understand it, but in the setting of, of being with your family members who and some of whom are working in a job or are going to be exposed to somebody who's maybe quite vulnerable. You know, I get it. I don't know that they do any good. I really don't know. All right. The air that I'm breathing does go out the sides of the mask and does flitter around inside the, uh, in the house and on the patio. And so, and a lot of people are catching it despite the fact that they're being very careful about mask wearing. Yeah. Do you believe in asymptomatic carrying? Oh, sure. Was, yeah. 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 I mean, all viruses uh, probably transmit more likely from asymptomatic people because symptomatic people usually self-isolate. Yeah. You don't feel good. You just, you stay home. So, so this, this is the thing I'd like to say about the most recent wave of people. A lot of people I know have caught COVID. Um, and a lot of them were very careful for a very long time. Um, so I, I like to think about it like nature, like, like an earthquake or a hurricane. 
you know, nature is doing its thing. And we as human beings like to think that we can control it to a T. And we can't. You know, we've been in our homes. We've been wearing masks. We've been washing hands. We've been doing all kinds of things. I saw I saw a photo. I, I hesitate to say this. I won't name names. But I saw a photo of a local midwife who had um, a mask and a, a face shield and said, this is midwifery in 2021. And I was like, not for me. Not for me. <laughs> not for me. Um, and it doesn't mean that I won't respect people and protect people and do everything that I can um, to be safe. Um, but look, I've done all those things and I'm still sick. And I have a really good friend whose husband brought it home. And she's furious because she's, you know, done everything possible. And so, you know, we can try all we can to control life. But sometimes life just can't be controlled. And what is happening in the in-between? That's that's what I, where I think you and I really overlap is like what's happening to life in the in-between. And if the statistics of dying in a fatal car crash are higher than dying from COVID, something seems wacky to me about that. Yeah. I would like to say one last thing about COVID today and then we'll just drop the COVID subject whatsoever. And we'll move on. But, but the hysteria about COVID, okay, that's going on right now, all right, and the lockdowns and the damage caused by the lockdowns. <laughs> What I believe has happened is that is that the people that were supportive of, of the lockdowns and shutting down people's lives and, and you know, have painted themselves into a corner because it's clear that that the survival rate of this is much better than we thought. And the long term illness, uh, long term chronic illness rate from this is actually quite low than what they call the uh, late COVID or something like that or forgot what it's called. But. But it's still really, really low. But they've, they've, they've really destroyed a lot of businesses, a lot of people's lives and stuff like that. So they painted themselves into a corner. And so they're, they, they can't – and the nature of, of government and people in power and stuff is never to apologize for anything, never to just ask for mea culpa and say, I'm sorry, we were wrong. They'll never do that. So they're looking for a way out, and I think the way out is going to be the vaccine, whether it works or not. The vaccine is going to be the thing. Well, now everybody's vaccinated, so now we can open up because now it's safe. Never ever admitting that they really made bad decisions in the first part, and a lot of what they've done, and and the the damage that they've done, long you know, to whether it's to individual people who are depressed, people dying alone, uh, people uh, lost their business, whatever those things are, they're never going to take responsibility for that. So they've looked for a way out, and so they've. They've doubled down on all the, the things that you, oh, you've got to isolate, you've got to do this and this, and now they're stuck. And they can't suddenly say, oh, you know, we were wrong, take your mask off and go to work. Never mind. What? Never mind. Go about your life. Never mind. So the vaccine, whether it's good or not, is going to be the, the I think, the, the golden ticket that gets them out of the mess. Yeah. Speaking of the vaccine, are you a part of the LA Midwives Group? So you get the emails. Yes. And it's interesting to me to, to watch. Everybody on the group seems to think that this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they can't wait to get their vaccines. And I understand that. But these are the same people that are vaccine hesitant for their, their clients. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the people who aren't so excited about it are just not speaking up on the L.A. Midwives group because I don't and I haven't seen a single dissent, uh, you know, that I'm not getting mine. You know, I don't think people who aren't getting it, you know, we're sort of, we're sort of shamed into the corner. I'm not saying I won't get one, but I'm just saying that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not that excited about it. There was a, there was a, uh, you know, the Babylon Bee? No. Babylon Bee is a, like the onion. It's a, it's a um, sar- uh, satire site. Mm-hmm. And they post the thing that says that, that they, there's a new study out that says the, the vaccine only works if you post a picture of yourself getting, getting a vaccine on Instagram. <laughs> um, I will say I will say out loud that I'm not getting a vaccine. I will. I'm not. I don't intend to, but ultimately, if I want to travel to uh, Ecuador or I want to go to <laughs> South Africa or some other favorite place to teach or something like that, and they make me do it, like I mean, I've gotten vaccines to travel before. I got yellow fever, and I got you know that sort of thing. Those vaccines, and so. You know, will it be the, the, the death of me if I have to do it to travel? No, it won't be. But, you know, you're right. I, I don't intend to do it either. And not, and not right now in, in such early stages. I also, though, I did say to my, my kids, that I, my daughter, who's biologically connected to me, I said, 
I said, I would rather get it before you get it. Because I think that there's a genetic predisposition in some people to react badly to it. And I would rather have the genetic predisposition react badly in me than have it happen to my daughter. Because I've lived a really, I've lived a really good life and I don't, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't have any chronic illnesses other than orthopedic issues, which is my own fault. <laughs> but, um, but I, I don't, I don't want her to get a shot, end up with one of these people, these rare people who end up with these chronic autoimmune issues and yeah. inflammatory yeah. issues. Okay. All right. So I have, um, Couple quick things. Well, not quick, but I'll, uh, first one's a, a letter from uh, Ellen. From where's Ellen from? <laughs> not sure where she's from. Probably said, so. "Oh, North County, San Diego." Uh, and she wrote about this. This is a letter about unexplained bleeding in the first and maybe even second trimester. So that's an interesting question because people that happens not uncommonly. Hang on, let me let Danny in here. Okay. Okay. All I right. was looking. At Hi, Danny. Welcome. Uh, so it says, uh, hi, Dr. Stu. I'm emailing you from North County, San Diego as a big fan with the lovely bliss. That's true. Uh, thank you for all the insight you do provide weekly. I'm hoping you can provide some insight on some issues I'm currently experiencing. I'm 29 years old. This is my second pregnancy. Uh, first one was a miscarriage. And I'm planning to give birth at home with local midwives out in Carlsbad. All right, well, I'll be down in Encinitas pretty soon, so I, you know, <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, there's some great midwives down in Carlsbad. I've worked with a lot of them. I also see an OBGYN who's been co-managing my care with my midwives. I have been experiencing unexplained bleeding throughout my first trimester. During the week six to eight, I had daily episodes of small gushes of bright red blood and daily spotting. Is that normal? Sometimes. No. It's never, it's never normal. <laughs> Is it, is it, do we see it? Yes. And can it, does it mean there's a problem? Not always, but it's never normal. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it's not a problem. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, ultrasounds came back rem unremarkable and eventually stopped. No big deal. I'm now 13 weeks. Um, and for six days, I have again been having daily gushes of bright red blood, but this time far heavier than the first bout at six to eight weeks. Definitely not normal. Yes. Yes. No significant clots or cramping, but filling a pad in a matter of seconds before tapering off again. I had a diagnostic ultrasound after the first few episodes, came back totally unremarkable. Baby's fine. The NIPT results were normal. Uh, the placenta was intact and not low-lying. The cervix was closed, and there was no subchorionic hemorrhage to be found. This is all good news, but I continue to have these episodes of heavy bleeding that are quite frightening and mostly confusing. My OB is not concerned at all. And my midwife's declined request to have a speculum exam to look at my cervix. I'm thinking, is it atropion erosion? I'm interested to know how she knows about atropion erosion, which is great. It's and recommended seeing a perinatologist for an explanation. When I do think seeing a perinatologist would be helpful, I'm nervous to get flagged as high risk and I'm planning a home birth. I don't feel like I'm getting the answers or compassion from my providers right now. And I find myself thinking, Quote, I wish I could talk to Bliss and Dr. Stu about this. Uh, so she would love our input. So um, real quickly, I wrote her back, and I want your comments after you hear what I said to her. I said, Dear Ellen, without taking a full history and doing an exam, I can only suggest a tangential opinion. I always say that because it's never really good medicine. I don't really – I'm having a hard time with this whole thing with telemedicine. Um, you know, it's a new trend now. Everybody's doing telemedicine. and so that, but you can't put your hands on something. You can't really get a feel for it. You can't see the woman's whole body. You see her yeah. face. You don't, you don't see her ankles. You don't see her midsection. You don't see, you know, if there's something that's going on with the rest of her body. And so you can't really make out that, you know, it's a little, it's, it's a tougher thing. Anyway, um, that's why I always put that disclaimer at the beginning. Unexplained bleeding in the first trimester is a risk factor for preterm labor and, and preterm birth, obviously. But that is not something there is much to do about at this time. Looking at your cervix makes sense, and I am impressed that you know about atropian erosion and then also a possibility of a cervical polyp. I don't think you need to come to, up to Calabasas for a consult on this. I would agree that you should encourage one of your practitioners to take a look. A maternal fetal medicine consult at this point seems excessive. 
Your doctor has done an appropriate evaluation at this point, unless there is something else in your history regarding excessive bruising or prolonged menses that would indicate some sort of clotting problem. Ruling out subchorion hemorrhage and previa, as well as a vanishing twin, which are, all, which are the three most common etiologies of first trimester bleeding, has been done. So you say, as, as, you, as you say, I will discuss with Bliss on a future podcast if that is okay. So my feeling is that I'm not sure why her doctor or her midwives have sort of not taken it more seriously and at least put a speculum in and looked at her cervix. Can you um, can you go into what atropian erosion is? Yeah, there are two types of cells on the cervix. There are the squamous cells, which are the shiny flat cells that cover the outside part of the cervix. And then from the inside out come the endocervical cells. Those are glandular cells. They're a single layer of cells which have mucus glands inside of them. And that's where your cervical mucus comes from that. Squamous cells are like the cells of your skin and, and uh, the uh, endometrial, I mean the... Uh, the columnar cells are like the cells that lie in your mouth or any other mucous membrane. So when uh, the, the squamous cells are tough, they have like a keratin, they like have a shield of armor on them, but the other cells are, are, are exposed. And so they, they're not designed to be exposed to the, the hostile vaginal environment of low pH or acidic environment. So when they are, when, they're, when it's everted a little bit, which can happen with childbirth, it can happen naturally, um, it's a process that's very common in young women. And as you get older, the squamous cells that gradually overtake the, um, the columnar cells. And where the two cells meet is called the transformation zone. And that's where abnormal pap smears and stuff happen, which is why the pap smear is such a good screening test because they can just take cells off of that area and stuff like that. But if those, those columnar cells are exposed to the vaginal uh, environment, they sometimes get irritated. And when, the, when cells are irritated, they are hypervascular and they can just bleed very easily. But I think, you know, if she doesn't have postcoital bleeding, which is bleeding after sex, which I didn't ask her about because I'm not taking her history, but it's something that you could think about, um, then um, that would be, uh, be less likely that she has ectropion or even a cervical polyp, but it's certainly worth taking a look. She, she has, she's a primate. She had one, uh, like one miscarriage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Um. You know, the only thing I can think of is um, a concern of causing more bleeding and that the information is not going to necessarily change the course of her delivery. So the only reason I could see the reason to do it is that it may help her feel more comfortable. Yeah, so, if she, I mean, if she has a cervical polyp, it explains it. I mean, you don't necessarily take off a cervical polyp when you're pregnant. But it would get, you're right, it would give her a peace of mind to know what's going on because if that's what it is, if it's bleeding from a polyp, that takes away the, the risks I said earlier of, of preterm labor or premature birth. Um, but unexplained bleeding, you know, again, as, as, as partly a, as a sort of a scientist anyway, I, I always think if you can find an explanation without doing a whole lot of unnecessary testing, putting a speculum in is, with her permission, is not this dastardly yeah. thing. I think, I think as always, what I always go back to is it's about informed consent. So, you know, I'm not a big one to want to do membrane sweeps or um, break somebody's bag or something like that. But if I had an informed woman who asked me to do that after we had a thorough discussion, then I would do it for her. So in this situation, you know, if she wanted me to look with the speculum, I'd be happy to do that. But um, I can't speak to why her providers won't. Okay. Yeah. So Ellen, that's what that's that's the thing. I would I would ask your provider to do it just to rule it out. Just take a look. It's very easy to do. They don't even have to put the speculum in all the way, they, so they don't even have to touch your cervix when they do it. So yeah, of course. And then um, and then sometimes yeah. things are missed on an early ultrasound, like low lying placenta or having a suction turret lobe or something like that. So when you get you know when you get a little further along, sixteen weeks, eighteen weeks, maybe even twenty weeks. You know, and you have a, if you do have a detailed structural scan, make sure they take a really good look with even with color Doppler, see if there's sort of some weird vessels down there or anything like that. So to make sure that that's not a problem. Okay. Um, uh, in the chat, Annie was asking if we are going to go back to reading excerpts from your book, which oh. we were doing before. Did, did Annie like that? I mean, there's my book right here. There's that Dr. Stu graphics at work. 
<laughs> our high tech, uh, our high tech. Uh, can we up? Yeah, we can. Okay. Yeah. We, we, we can. I mean, often, often what we can do is we can use it as a filler if we run out of things to talk about, which doesn't seem to ever be our problem. So, uh, okay. So we're already like, oh, we got 20 minutes left. Okay. So um, Hannah, who's a perennial listener, but I, she's not a Zoom listener, so we haven't had her on lately. Uh, send me a, a thing about melatonin. You probably know a lot more about melatonin than I do. You don't? I do. I do. Oh, I thought, it, see, melatonin to me is sort of like cauldron stuff. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, it's not something, it's not like a, something that we prescribe generally in the medical world that, that you know, um, when I was training. So... Oh, then maybe I do. What's the question? Okay, well, let me just, uh, she just wanted to talk. She actually sent me a reference. She says, uh, hi, Dr. Stu, happy new year. Um, below is a post from a researcher I follow that I thought I'd like, you'd like to know about. And he says, many of my Facebook friends have asked if melatonin supplementation is safe during pregnancy. Melatonin supplementation is not only regarded as safe during pregnancy, Science now recommends melatonin as an alternative for two vaccines for the protection of mother and fetus from influenza virus infections. Did not know that. Did you know that? No. Okay. Um, I've talked about the importance of melatonin for fetal development in light obesity and COVID-19, the melatonin connection. Oh, that's a paper or something that he wrote, this person who wrote this. Melatonin receptors are widespread in the human embryo and fetus during pregnancy. Maternal melatonin can easily diffuse across the placenta and is also transferred to the infant during breastfeeding. During pregnancy, melatonin levels may increase after 24 weeks and reach extremely high levels after 32 weeks. Disturbances in maternal melatonin during gestation can cause metabolic alterations in the fetus. By the way, how, you know, what is, what's the uh, obvious thing that melatonin does to a pregnant woman? No, I don't know. Oh, it causes the um, the linea on the, oh, on, yeah. on the belly, right? <clears throat> contrary, contrary to, uh, yeah. Contra you know why it does that is because, because when you're a, uh, an embryo and you're a fetal plate and you, and you end up folding together, you have these cells and there's a higher concentration of melatonin or uh, pigmented cells in the midline. Mm -hmm. And melatonin stimulates those cells to make pigment and that's why you get the brown you know your skin you may get freckles everywhere but you get a brown line and also your nipples darken and your nipples darken right correct correct um contrary to previous who recommendations for pregnant women as a priority group for seasonal influenza vaccination regardless of their stage of pregnancy evidence has now emerged showing that anti-flu vaccines when administered in the second and third trimester of pregnancy provide pregnant women with uncertain or very limited protection against influenza-like diseases and, and flu. The natural increase of melatonin during pregnancy is nature's solution to viral and respiratory infections. Deficient melatonin secretion during pregnancy can result in pregnancy complications such as spontaneous miscarriage, preeclampsia, fetal hypoxia, and inadequate parturition timing. Oh, inadequate labor, I guess, or timing of labor. In a recent letter to the editor at Melatonin Research, renowned melatonin specialist Tesarek believes that melatonin should be considered a serious candidate for the replacement of the inefficient and potentially harmful anti-flu vaccine in pregnant women. Okay? So, um, first of all, I don't think many of my, uh, my listeners or midwives that I know recommend the flu vaccine in pregnancy. I know that ACOG does, and I know that my my former associates in my office where I used to work give it to almost every one of their patients along with Tdap. They get flu and Tdap. All right. Uh, we've talked about the data. We've talked about the numbers on the Tdap before the flu vaccine obviously doesn't, doesn't, um, you know, I mean, it has it, in, in a good year, it has what 50%, 30% effectiveness. I'm not even sure what the number is, but it's not very good. No, I've read a lot less than that. Oh, less than that? Okay. I think you said, one time you say like 13% or something like that. Was that you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, but I did look up, I did do a little research on melatonin online. When I, you know, when people write me letters, I go to my sources and um, I found that, you know, there's a lot to this. There's like no reason not to take it actually. 
I mean, I have never recommended it to pregnant women, but I might start to tell them to take it. And the doses is, is essentially, I looked up the doses and the, a, a dose for jet lag is actually 0.5 milligrams a day. And they, they say up to three milligrams a day or less is uh, in a controlled release style. Don't get the, like the, you want to get a controlled release melatonin, but up to three milligrams a day apparently is good to take, healthy to take, no downside to taking it. And if it does help prevent you from catching the flu or does other good things for your body, then why not? Do you have a reason why not? Um, I have a, I have a, um, a colleague who um, I went to school with who's very young, but probably the smartest one in our class who's done a lot, a ton of research around um, um, things like marijuana and pregnancy. And she mentioned recently when we were talking about it in a chat group about um, I have to go back and look at it and maybe uh, send you a link to the science. But she was saying that taking it um, ongoingly can actually really interfere with the normal receptors that you have. So I'll have to do a little bit more research. I think, that, I think that melatonin in pregnancy um, as a occasional, there's no like harm, but I, I would, I would need to do a little bit more research about recommending how about, it. How about for sleep? That's what I'm saying. Once in a while, I'll tell people it's okay, but I wouldn't, I, I am always trying to find other strategies to help them sleep okay. without take supplementation unless they really have to. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand that. And it's sort of my, my feeling about everything is, is nature designs things to work in a certain way. Why are we messing with it? But are people, people who have a problem that might indicate that melatonin might be helpful for them? That's yeah, but individualizing it, not just as a blanket. Yeah, thing. yeah, not like telling everyone to take a prenatal vitamin or something. Like that. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Hannah, for that. Okay. So remember, we did a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago called "Complicating the Simple." Yeah. That was the title of it. Yeah. Okay. So this is the Green Journal. People have seen the Green Journal before. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and this is the latest uh, edition. This is the January 2021 edition. And, you know, um, one of the things that we don't pay a lot of attention to, we did do an interview once with Alyssa Berlin, uh, who has a, uh, is a PhD and focuses on postpartum issues. Yeah, I believe she's a marriage and family therapist as well. Oh, but I think she's a, because she's Dr. Berlin. So, um, and she's our favorite uh, chiropractor, Elliot Blintz along with a lot of other favorite chiropractors, Lindsay and all those other people out there don't, don't take it to the wrong way. But friend of the podcast, uh, Dr. Elliot Berlin's wife. And she did a, a thing about postpartum. And so it's one of those things that doesn't get a lot of attention from doctors. You know, in the standard medical model, a woman delivers in the hospital, she goes home on day one or two, and the doctor says, I'll see you in six weeks. And that's it. So everybody, I mean, and ACOG has taken and paid attention to this and is trying to emphasize more attention to the postpartum time as, as an important, obviously important. One third of all maternal deaths occur postpartum. All that stuff can happen. There's lots of problems that can occur postpartum and it's not been something that's paid attention to it. You know, I think it's like, uh, you know, the, the baby is the candy, the mother's the wrapper and the candy is out. So now what do you do with the wrapper? You throw the wrapper way because you're done with it and as an obstetrician postpartum stuff isn't that interesting you know as far as compared to the antipartum stuff so it's it's been the poor stepchild for for quite a while and i think acog in their credit is trying to fix that and trying to make more attention to it and even trying to figure out ways to get insurance companies to offer more reimbursement for more visits because right now there's a global fee and no matter how many postpartum visits you do you can't bill for them in the way the thing is set up. And so doctors, naturally, if you're not gonna get paid for something, you're not gonna probably wanna spend time doing it. And they wanna to try to get, and I think we wanna to try to get things like lactation consultants and postpartum doulas that maybe possibly covered uh, something. So I think that's, in, in general, I think they're, they have good intentions, but you know what they say about good intentions, okay? So um, they, they, there's a paper that came out, and when I get back to complicating the simple, to me, postpartum care isn't that complicated. 
you need to pay attention to the woman. You need to help them with breastfeeding. You need to support them emotionally. You need to support them hormonally. You need to do all the things that need to do it, but you need to be there for them and being there for them and being available and being communicative and making sure they have the right support is not, doesn't have to be that complicated. All right. Not if you're a researcher. Okay. So, um, there's a, there's a paper in there called Consensus Bundle on Postpartum Care Basics. I'm going to have to put my glasses on to see this. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so they're, there's, they're looking at um, a way to tailor interventions to improve the safety and well-being of families during the fourth trimester of pregnancy. Okay. So... What they do is they're, they're, they're trying, there's an alliance of innovation on maternal health. And I looked them up and they're the people that put this together from the School of Medicine of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, University of North Carolina. And I looked them up and there were, uh, I think there were 10, 10 women on this board of people when I went to their website. And not one of them was an MD. Not one of them was a, a nurse midwife. All right. They were all masters in public health or administrative people. And they, their mission was recognizing the increasing burden of maternal mortality and morbidity during the postpartum period. The Alliance of Innovation and Maternal Health convened an interdisciplinary work group to develop a maternal safety bundle to address this issue. Okay. Right which now, is, what? Which is true. We talked about that in a, in a previous podcast that a lot of the um, maternal deaths here in um, the United States has to do with the postpartum time where they're not getting any care. They leave home and they don't have a provider see them for six weeks. And in other countries, they have home care. Right. Right. I know that you understood what I said, but it just, just even, even reading that gives me a headache reading what they're doing. The, their Alliance of Innovation and Maternal Health convened an interdisciplinary work group to develop a maternal safety bundle to address the issue. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Okay. All right. So here's, you know, they came up with 28 points. Okay. 28 guidelines. I'm going to read some of them because I just want you to hear what they, they come up with. Complicating the simple. Remember, that's the theme here. Okay. Uh, every woman should engage with a healthcare provider during prenatal care to develop a comprehensive personalized postpartum care plan. The plan includes designation of a postpartum medical home, medical home for the period between birth and the comprehensive postpartum visit. That doesn't even make sense. Postpartum medical home for the period between birth and the comprehensive postpartum visit. I don't even know what that means. Okay. Every woman receives woman-centered counseling and anticipatory guidance regarding medical recommendations for breastfeeding to make an informed feeding decision. Every woman receives woman-centered counseling regarding medical recommendations for birth spacing and the range of available contraceptive options. Every woman identifies a postpartum care team inclusive of friends and family to provide medical material and social support in the weeks after birth. I don't disagree with any of these things. It's just, it's just, as a physician or as a midwife, implementing stuff that you be, that becomes so complicated the way they're even talking about it. Because here's what they recommend for every healthcare provider. Ensures that each woman has a documented postpartum care plan and a care team identified in the prenatal period. Every healthcare provider develops and maintains a working knowledge of evidence-based evaluation and management of common issues facing the mother-infant dyad. Every clinical setting develops and optimizes models of woman-centered postpartum care and education using adult learning principles when possible and embracing the diversity of family structures, cultural traditions, and parenting practices. Okay? You, you, may be, you may be understanding this, Bliss. But, and that's only, that's only seven. There are 28 of these things. Yeah, I, won't, I, I won't read them all, but they're all like this. They're all... This is what happens to me. This is what happens when you take academicians and you take people with, you know, administrative uh, or they're oriented toward administration or they're masters or, or PhDs in, in administrative things or public health or whatever. But they're, but 
this is not, this is not, a, it needs to be interpreted into something that, that they can give to a physician who, or, a, you know, or teaching residency program where people can actually like, Oh, that I can, I can, I can, I can file that away in my brain and, and do that. Because when you speak like this, all right, no, I mean, to, to me, it just loses me instantly. Now that may, maybe I'm unique. Maybe I'm the only person that it's lost, but um yeah, collaborates with the community to maintain a clearinghouse for resources that address the needs of women during the postpartum period. What does that mean? I mean, I have a resources I have a resources page on my on my website, but what is it? Collaborates with the community to maintain a clearinghouse for res. What what what's the word a clearinghouse? Do we, is it a word you ever use? No. Why do they say that? Convenes inpatient and outpatient professionals to share successful strategies and identify opportunities for improvement. These are health systems are supposed to do this. So that what's going to happen is now administrators of health systems are going to take this stuff and then they're going to mandate that every every physician on staff come and sit in a seminar and listen to this stuff. And doctors are going to resent the whole thing and no one's going to do it. I can tell you what will make it make make it more better to do it is if they reimburse better for postpartum care. Yeah. Okay, I simplify the complex. Pay for it, people will do it. Don't pay for it, people won't do it. Okay. Done. You're done with yeah, I had to. I had to get that out of my system because. Yeah. I you know I I, I, I scan through the titles on the the journal when it comes and I look at the ones that have to do with OB. Oh, the other thing I would say about that is when you look at when you look at the Green Journal and you look at the case reports. I mean, they're, they're really bizarre, like way out there case reports on, on like strange viruses, chemotherapy, blah, 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 something that has no practical application whatsoever. And when I submitted a paper to the Green Journal about interlocking heads and about a case report on that, oh, the, no one's going to do that. It's not going to my, my case report could save a life. Right. All right. But... It wasn't worthy, but then I look at, I, you know, I, I, maybe this is a little bit of professional angst or jealousy here, but I look at what, the, what they publish and I go, this is not for, this is not for the practitioner. Not for you. No, but maybe. Not, you know, it's not, I mean, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to take up anybody's time on that, but if anybody's really bored, you can go to the ACOG website, go to the Green Journal website and you can look at the titles of the case reports and you can see what I'm talking about. Well, um, we have we have run out of time, so my that, pushing that, article is going to get pushed back. Pushing, pushed back. Which article? The pushing article. Oh, is it going to take more than two, two minutes? Yeah. We're going to start with that next time. It's actually okay. really interesting. What it talks about is, um, you know, yeah, the stuff that we can look for without having to check a mom because the actual vaginal exam can set a woman back. Um, so we'll talk about that more next time. Yeah, so um, this is, that's simplifying the complex again, because because it's exactly right. I mean, like you said in a couple podcasts ago, I still I still quote you now. I say, say, what was the last time someone did a, a, a an exam at seven centimeters on a tiger? Yeah, um, that was actually Sister Morningstar um, from her article. But yes, I love it. Who yeah. does a exam on a tiger? Um, so it was great to see you. I miss being in person. Thank you for those of you who joined us today. Um, we will start to include some of your, um, some of the readings from your book because, um, what she was saying was it's nice to hear how your perspective has changed. So I think that we'll, we'll pick that up again in, in 2021. Happy new year to everyone. Um, we didn't really talk about that, but it's a new year. It's a new dawn. So, um, I'd love to keep, um, you know, being optimistic about what's possible in this new year. What's happening, you know, the changes that can happen. We're going to try, we're going to try our best to stay positive. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna try our best, and we understand that you know. For those of you, for those of you who actually tuned in today, I'm doubly thrilled. But I know that we all have so many things that distract us from our day, and for you guys to give us an hour of your time, despite all the other things out there that you could be doing, um, is greatly appreciated. We always will try to make that hour worthwhile for you. 
So again, thank you so much for um, for uh, tuning in today. This has been podcast number 196. Uh, it is yet untitled. We'll come up with one shortly. And uh, you can, again, find the podcast at drstuespodcast.com. You can find us on your smartphone app, podcast app by just putting in Dr. Stewart, uh, Dr. Stu's podcast. It'll come up and then click and then subscribe to it. So it just pops up on your phone every week. Um, you can find us, uh, the video of this on Rumble, and you can please share that with people who you love who didn't tune in today who, so that they know it's available and they can watch the video if they prefer to watch video. Some people do it while they're in their car and they just would do their audio, but... But I, I, you know, some people like watching the video, even though there's not much going on <laughs> between you and me. Um, and and if you want to join us on Zoom, um, the link is in my um, link tree, and um, Dr. Stu posts it every week on his um, Instagram as well. And um, on Dr. Stu's podcast on Facebook, are you doing anything? Well, there? it goes to Dr. Stuart Fishbein OBGYN on Facebook, and then I usually share it to Dr. Stu's podcast. So the link is everywhere. And obviously people found it and a lot more people found it today than previous days. So this is, this is, I think this is, for now, this is the way we're going to do it. And so again, until we see you next time, uh, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast number 196. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.